0: continuing in the gospel of John we've been working our way through this for some time now and we are nearing the end as we began this morning the final chapter in John we'll read that text in just a moment let me ask you a question to begin with today have you have you ever been aware of of something that that needed to be done or maybe that you, you desired. You, it was a, a drive of you of yours to to do something particular, but yet you lacked the ability to do so. You may even be able to visualize that particular thing and be able to articulate what that result should or would look like, but but you you have it or you didn't possess the resources or other abilities to see that. That plan through. Now, let me give you just a, 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 an example that maybe help you understand what I'm getting at. Many of you are, are very aware of, of my desire and my ongoing work in Haiti. I have a huge heart for Haiti. And so as I began that work down there with some others, things began to take shape. We saw needs. We saw things that, that could be done and in my mind, I have a very vivid picture of what that ought to look like. Now, if it was an artist, maybe I could draw it, but I'm not. But it's very pip- pip- vivid in my mind what that should be. I can I can see the mission house that we've been working on for some time completed and what that would look like and what that would mean. I can see the organization of of regularly scheduled leadership training seminars being conducted at, at least quarterly in that mission house along with additional church leadership training in the current church that we work alongside of. I can visualize my mind and, and even spell out to some extent the multiplication of churches and church planning that, that we would love to see take place there in Port-au-Prince and beyond. Yet, over the years, I have lacked the resources that would enable me to fully complete that to this point. Now, in my particular example, in this scenario, the necessary resources are largely time and money. But now, in your scenario, in your plan or your vision, so to speak, uh, it might be something else. It might be time. It might be money. But it might also include things like the strength, just to have the, the health and the strength to be able to, or maybe even the, the knowledge To to see it through in process, though you can see what you desire so clearly. Now, when we find ourselves in in these kind of predicaments, we can respond to them in in one of several ways. In the above example, my personal example that I've given you, we've chipped away a little bit at a time over at, at least the last five years, bit by bit. At times, we've made noticeable progress, and at other times, the progress has been Barely noticeable in other situations, your own, you may labor a little a little at a time towards your particular goal, ever etching closer, edging closer to that dream, or sometimes you might respond by simply sitting back and waiting and just hoping that one day somehow you'll be able to accomplish your task. But in the meantime, you go about your normal routine. All the while dreaming of the day that your hopes, your dreams might become a reality. It is often in the accomplishment of these kinds of plans, these kinds of dreams that we experience our greatest fulfillment. Because because that which we most desire, whatever that is in your life, whether that be directed at family, whether it's directed at entertainment, friends... Uh, other things of biblical nature. Whatever it is that we most desire gives way to both our greatest disappointments and our greatest satisfaction. And so uh, that begs the question for each of us, what what is it that you desire more than anything else? What is it that you desire most of all? What is it that you dream of? What do you find yourself sitting alone and thinking and dreaming about? What fuels your passions and drives you forward? And then, as you think of those, have you in any sense attained your dreams? Maybe some of you say, I, we've, I've accomplished it. I, I've been back there looking forward and now I, I've, I've tasted it. I, I've got my hands wrapped around it. But have you attained your dreams, or or do they still lie off in the distant future, ever beyond your ability to obtain them? Or have you, maybe, in some sense, though you haven't accomplished them, maybe tasted of the the first fruits of real satisfaction in those desires, in those dreams? Or to put it in the expression of today's message, the title, Are You Fool? Are you fool? As we arrive at this final installment in John 21, we discover that Jesus' disciples uh, are, are in much the same situation. You might not recognize it at first, but they very much are. They have dreamed big dreams. And they've even sampled the ultimate outcome. They've tasted of it in some sense. They have experienced radical life-transforming events. And, and most of all, the life-transforming events. And they've even personally experienced the impossible. They've seen it. Yet, in a somewhat anticlimactic manner, as you read chapter 21, especially these first 14 verses, John records this this last encounter, this final encounter that the disciples had. And in light of their time with Jesus and their personal witness of his death, his burial, and his subsequent resurrection, what we read in the first half of this final chapter seems to be somewhat less than impressive. It just kind of goes downward, so to speak, in its climax. There is more to be done. There is something much greater to be accomplished, but in spite of how you might expect these disciples who walked with Jesus, who experienced what they experienced... Before and after the resurrection, in spite of how you might expect the disciples to respond, John informs us in John 21 that they go fishing. So let's read these first 14 verses together. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, The sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and they got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. Now uh, they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the time that we have spent working our way through this gospel. It's it's been extremely Helpful, extremely enlightening. And there's been times along the way, Lord, that, that we've struggled with how to understand something, but nevertheless, your Spirit has given us understanding in many ways. And so we pray for that very same thing this morning, Lord. We understand that we don't come here, Lord, for to just increase in our knowledge that we might have something to boast about or to satisfy any uh, particular thing except for your glory. But Lord, in the midst of this time, we understand by your word that you are glorified as we receive your word and we embrace that word and we, that word becomes continually transforming in our lives. And so, God, this morning we pray for, for those who who have repented and believed and they are your followers. I pray that, Lord, you would now give them a, uh, the, the ability by the power of your spirit to embrace you know, your word and may your word speak loudly to their hearts And work towards their sanctification and their encouragement and their passions for the gospel. And I pray this morning for those who are here who have yet to repent of their sins and believe the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes and give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that would gladly embrace the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that they too might repent and believe unto salvation. Have your way in our hearts this morning. Be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This final chapter in John serves to sum up, in many ways, the gospel. This entirety of this message that John has recorded for us. Now, I need to note that it is in John chapter 20, just prior to where we started this morning, in verses 30 and 31, that we find the record of John's purpose statement for writing his gospel. It's somewhat kind of awkward because... At the end of 20, we get that kind of conclusionary purpose statement, and then we have chapter 21. And it's for this reason that we've chosen, if you have noted it, to skip over those two verses, and we'll return to them on, as our final message in John on May 25th, which Jared will be sharing with you. But John, after writing this purpose statement in chapter 20, he, he continues to conclude his gospel with one final encounter with Jesus. And John utilizes, I think, this, this encounter to offer his readers, that is the audience to whom he is writing, two additional major truths he wants to enforce or reinforce. The first of these two major truths comes in verses 1 through 14, and the second then in verses 15 through 25. Our attention today, of course, will be focused on the first of these. And as we look at these 14 verses, this portion of John's final narrative, I want us to consider three observations that arise from this story that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, includes in his gospel. Those three observations are simply this. Number one, Jesus confirms his resurrection. Number two... The disciples' powerless transition. And then number three, the difference. John begins this final narrative by emphasizing Jesus once again revealed or manifested himself to the disciples. It's the very first verse. After these things, Jesus revealed himself again. Again. John's choice of terms in this particular verse indicates that there was this was more than just the record of Jesus merely appearing. It was more than an issue of just his appearance to the disciples, but rather that Jesus was, as my Bible translates, and maybe many of yours do, does as well. It was Jesus' purpose, rather, to reveal Himself or to manifest Himself to them with a purpose. His purpose, according to John, as, as is encased in that word, is to reveal. That's what he says, after he's saying Jesus revealed himself. Now, to, that word, to reveal, indicates the idea of disclosing something, uh, unveiling something to someone or other people with the intended outcome of understanding. That's what it means to reveal something. So, it's Jesus' desire in this episode and John's desire in recording it to point us to Jesus unveiling or disclosing something to his disciples. So Jesus' final encounter, we can say, with these disciples was intended to provide understanding on their behalf, as well as understanding to those who would later read this account. That would be you and I, even. And the ultimate question that arises, then, is what additional knowledge was it that Jesus was seeking to unveil or to disclose? Was this additional knowledge new knowledge? Was it something that had yet to be revealed? Or was it merely further expression of what had already been disclosed to the disciples? And it is likely that the answer in this narrative is both. There is both a hint at something more than has been revealed already. And then there is also further expression of... ...of what has already been revealed. In the very least, John provides this final account as further evidence of Jesus' resurrection. And that's, that's on a surface reading, you see that. This is clearly further evidence of the fact that Jesus Christ had indeed risen from the dead. Now we see this very clearly in John's structure of this, this narrative as he opens in verse 1 with that statement. Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples and then... We find at the very last verse, 14, that we're looking at today, that John writes, this is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And and, and by the beginning that way and and, and closing that way, uh, it becomes evident in the literary structure that John's trying to point us to an emphasis. In the way he writes it, he wants to emphasize something very important that's already been emphasized, but nevertheless to reinforce it. And this emphasis indicates that Jesus' three appearance, appearances... Remember, the first time in the, in the room without Thomas, second time he recorded with Thomas, and now this one. This emphasis, emphasis indicates that Jesus, Jesus' three appearances served to provide us with valid evidence that Jesus had risen and that his resurrection had substantially been confirmed by numerous account, eyewitness accounts. Not only had this great truth been witnessed by more than one person, it wasn't just by John. John writing and telling us of all those who have, who have experienced this post-resurrection encounter with Christ, but not only by more than one, but on numerous occasions. And the mere fact of this alone serves to validate the reality of the resurrection. So on the surface... This story is included in John and in an anticlimactic way after the purpose statement to, to be one more reminder for us, for the reader, that Jesus Christ had indeed risen from the dead. But in addition to yet another confirmation of the reality of the resurrection, John 21, 1-14 provides us with insight into a, a brief interim period between the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the arrival of the promised Holy Spirit. And during this transition, the disciples had been given specific instructions. They'd been given a commission. And we'll go back over that in just a moment. But yet they had not experienced the power that was provided to Christ's followers in order to carry out that commission. So they have been given instructions in the form of a commission... In chapter 20, and then we can look to other Gospels that give it to us in other ways, but yet they had not received the power that had been promised to carry out that commission. You see, in John 16, as we were there many months ago, Jesus taught his disciples about the Holy Spirit that was to come. He told them that he himself must go away in order for the Spirit to come. And then he unpacked what the Spirit would be doing. Remember, the Spirit would would come and remind uh, uh, us of all things that Jesus had taught us. He would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and he, He gave us some teaching on the role of the Spirit to come. And then, in addition to these instructions concerning the Spirit, if we go back one more chapter to John 15, we're reminded that in that course on the vine and the branches, as Jesus talked about that, He taught His disciples that Without him, they could do nothing. When he said those specific words, without me, you can do nothing. It is likely that John's account in this narrative, in chapter 20, 21, serves to illustrate this interim period when Jesus was no longer walking with them presently, but the Spirit had not yet come. There was a, maybe an undesirable transition going on. John informs us that the disciples were by the Sea of Tiberias. Now, that's just another way of saying the Sea of Galilee, which maybe is a little more familiar to us in terms. So, the disciples had now gone back to Galilee. We are, we are informed that following the resurrection, without giving us all the details, we are to assume that after their presence in Jerusalem, the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the disciples have now gone back north To the region of Galilee. Now, there are some who would argue that this narrative illustrates that the disciples had returned to their former way of life, indicating their lack of faith. Here they are. You know, all this had happened, now they've just gone back, and they've gone back, got on the boat, and they're out fishing just like they were from the start. Now, while that argument is indeed possible, John's account doesn't indicate that, that that is exactly what's going on in this narrative. Instead, John provides us with this geographical location for a reason. They're on the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And and if we were to consider the greater context of the other Gospels, which we should, we discover that this is the place that the disciples were told to go and wait. They were in Jerusalem. And Matthew 28 records words that were to be presented to the disciples. When When it records for us, then Jesus said to them... Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. So are we to assume they've gone back to their way of life? I I don't necessarily think so. It's merely merely enough information to understand that they're doing what they were told. Jesus said, go to Galilee. Here John records that that's exactly where we find them. It it is most likely that disciples were simply doing what Jesus had said to do. They returned to Galilee... To await Jesus' appearance. And in the course of their waiting, they were simply in need of food. Which would be normal, natural in time. And so they resorted to the means that they had for long been accustomed to, right? I mean, if a fisherman was hungry, and he's standing by a body of water, and he had no money, what do you think he would do? What did Simon say? Peter said, I'm going fishing. And the rest of the disciples said, we're going with you. It is for this reason that Peter decided to go fishing, I think, is probably a more valid way of understanding that. And the others then, of course, joined him. And John writes this and purposely draws our attention to two things. Number one, simply stated, he draws our attention to the fact that these men went fishing. Something that they were very knowledgeable about. And then number two, he draws our attention to the fact that they caught nothing. Something that we would, we would not expect of such lifelong experienced fishermen. And John then seeks to tell the story in such a way that points us to the lack of ability to accomplish their intended goal. They were by the sea. They needed food. They were fishermen. They go fishing. They come back empty-handed. Now, if we consider the broader context of John's gospel, along with the very thing that Jesus had promised when he went away, that is, that he promised when he went away the Holy Spirit would come, then we're made aware in this narrative, maybe not so obvious, but nevertheless it is there implicitly, we are made aware of the inability of Jesus' followers to fulfill their purpose apart from their Lord, apart from Christ. In John 20, verse 22, we are told simply that Jesus breathed and said, receive the Spirit. Now, while there are some that would that believe that at this moment the disciples, they received in that moment the Holy Spirit, uh, I believe that the text makes that unlikely. Because Jesus had told them the Spirit would not come, could not come until He had going back to the Father. Jesus had not yet gone to the Father. And then of course we find the story in Acts chapter 2 that reminds us then that it's there that the Spirit came upon them. So as Jesus says to them in that room, receive the Holy Spirit, it's merely a clear indication of Jesus commissioning what was going to happen because he follows that with what was going to be their role. They were going to go out there and offer forgiveness or withhold forgiveness. This is We talked about that several weeks ago. So this was their commission in light of the coming Holy Spirit. And he was merely exhorting them to receive the Spirit when the Spirit arrived. Which, again, we are provided with that information in the narrative in Acts chapter 2. So at this point in the story, the disciples had been given the commission but had not yet received the power to fulfill it. They were waiting. They were in transition. And while the arrival of the Spirit had nothing to do with catching fish, John uses this historic account of what really happened, these events, to illustrate the lack of ability to fulfill their task apart from the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, they didn't know what the coming of the Spirit would look like. They didn't know what the coming of the Spirit would would feel like. But they had been told that the Spirit was coming. Whatever that meant, they were expecting something. And of course, Acts chapter 2 teaches us that it is the Spirit, when He comes, that provides us with the power, the ability to fulfill the very commission that Jesus had given to His followers. And that commission is to be witnesses of Him to the ends of the earth. You know the verse, Acts 1-8? And you will receive power And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and even to the end of the earth. So in the meantime, life had returned to normal. The normal grind of every day. Uh, They had been fishermen before they met Jesus, and now they resort to what they know while they await the fulfillment of Christ's promise. They weren't turning their backs on Christ and returning to their old way of life. They were likely anticipating something that would empower them To be and to do what they could otherwise not accomplish. They were inadequate in themselves. They had proven that time and time again, had they not? They were inadequate in themselves. They needed something more to to live out this, this, this mandate, this commission that Christ had placed upon them. And which he continues to place upon all who follow him. And in this narrative of the disciples waiting, we are reminded of the gift that we presently have as followers of Christ. We are no longer waiting for the promise. It has been fully granted. Not in measure, but in fullness. And the commission to to those who follow Christ remains the same. What he commissioned his disciples to do, the moments after, the days after his resurrection, continues to be the very same commission which is given to all those who will follow him. It has not changed to be witnesses of him to the ends of the earth. Only, we have been fully granted the power to fulfill that commission. We we can't even imagine what it would be like to live in that transition where Christ had said, go, but wait. Go, but wait. Go, but you can't because you've not been empowered. You haven't received the power, so wait. What a crucial time. And not even knowing what that was going to look like. We have been fully granted that power. We are not left to ourselves to merely follow some form of protocol, to, to walk some specific line and do certain things. Every sinner who has repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ has been granted the gift of the Spirit in fullness by whom we are empowered to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth no matter what. I remind you again of that verse in Acts eight, and you will receive power. And you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The one thing that can provide us with the greatest satisfaction has been fully guaranteed. We are not left dreaming and hoping for something to happen in order to find some kind of fulfillment. Regardless of our particular hopes and and dreams that may be temporary in this life, we have everything necessary to fulfill the ultimate pursuit... As followers of Christ. And it is in this pursuit that we will experience our our fullest and truest satisfaction. In In our pursuit of Christ and his purpose for our lives, we too will find ourselves full. Which brings us to the final observation, which is already evident and obvious, and that is the difference. John's narrative serves to illustrate... This, very one, this one thing that makes the absolute difference. And, and again, th- this is not rocket science. This is, this is right there for us. Jesus himself is that difference. In this narrative, as John records it for us, John goes to great lengths to draw our attention to the circumstances surrounding the disciples' fishing trip. And understand that John isn't trying to fill a quota of words. The Holy Spirit inspiring him is not just trying to, to put stuff down. There's, there's, there's purpose in these things. And John goes to great lengths. The the Spirit of God inspiring John goes to great lengths to draw our attention to the circumstances surrounded this particular fishing trip. They spent the entire night fishing and caught nothing. Suddenly, as promised, Jesus shows up. He then tells them to cast their nets on the right side of the boat. I mean, come on. They're experienced fishermen. They're not idiots. They've been out all night and they haven't caught anything. And some guy on the shore whom they hadn't recognized yet says, throw them on the right side of the boat. So they throw them out. And based on the text reads, based on the way the text reads, by the time the nets hit the water, before they even had a chance to draw the net, it was filled to the full. So what made the difference? Simple, right? Jesus did. John goes on in the scenario to elaborate on this great catch. It was filled. Like I said before, the the net was even drugged. It was filled with 153 large fish. I mean, why that detail? In addition, John includes the detail that the net did not tear. And his inclusion of that particular detail indicates that such a large catch would have likely or normally split the net, or you would have expected it. Yet it didn't. Now, while I want to be careful in the way you handle these kinds of details. I want to be careful not to to go too far in spiritualizing certain things that are historic narratives. It is possible that what John does in the recording of this narrative is that he seeks to illustrate the sufficiency of the gospel to complete in full the work that God intends for it to do in this age. Jesus had once told the disciples earlier in his life, in his ministry, that he would make them fishers of men. He was he has now commissioned the, the disciples to do that very work. And in this one final revelatory act of revealing to them, he shows them once again that he and he alone has the power to transform the lives of sinners and make them his followers. The disciples... That is, those in this story and everyone that has followed since are tasked with the work of casting the net to be fishers of men. This likely illustrates the very proclamation of the gospel message. We are to proclaim the message. This is our net. There is nothing else. There is nothing better. There is nothing that can can make that net stronger or bigger. The gospel itself is the means by which sinners are quote-unquote, caught for the glory of God. Jesus, and Jesus alone, fills that net. Without Him, we can do nothing. We can spend all night casting. We can labor long and hard. But apart from Christ, we can do nothing. He is the only one who has... The power to transform lives. He is the only one who can make the difference in all our efforts and even in our faithfulness as we we labor faithfully. It isn't our efforts, it isn't our abilities, it isn't our smarts, it isn't how people oriented we are that makes the difference. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Without Him, we can do nothing. But with Him, Through the presence of the promised Holy Spirit, Christ's disciples can fulfill their calling. And the result of doing so is our own true fulfillment. Jesus makes all the difference. He has ascended to the Father. He has received all authority in heaven and on earth, as he declared. And he has sent the Spirit to empower us to fulfill our commission. It is now our task to obey. Jesus has risen from the dead. We've been celebrating that for several weeks now. And hopefully every single day of the year. He has risen from the dead. The word of God has validated this truth in numerous ways, time and time again. And as impossible as it may seem, it is true. Jesus lives. He is the Lord of all and requires, therefore, all sinners everywhere to repent And to believe the gospel message, all who follow Christ have been commissioned with a significant task. This is your commission if you are one of His. We are to cast a net by proclaiming the gospel message everywhere and at all times. The Spirit of God within us compels us. He compels us to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. This isn't optional. It isn't about how we feel the Spirit if He lives in us. And as followers of Christ, we are told He does to the full. We are compelled to bear witness of the truth of the gospel. Hint what that means. If you're not compelled, then the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you. Without Christ, we can do nothing. This isn't about learning protocol, learning plans, and carrying out certain things. This is about the power of God at work within his people to do what only he can do, but to do it by the means by which he has promised to do it, and that is his church. This also means without him we can do nothing, includes the fact that we can never experience true satisfaction and fulfillment unless we come to grips with our need of him and pursue him above all else. Jesus does intend, indeed, make all the difference. He hasn't promised to make life grand from the perspective of this age, as we look at it and think of good life. He hasn't promised to make us healthy or wealthy. He never promised that life in this age would be easy. In fact, he made it pretty pretty clear that all those who would live for him That living for him would bring tribulation in this life. But here's what he has promised. What he has guaranteed. He has told us that he himself has overcome the world. And that through him, we, his followers, would be more than conquerors. He has promised that if we come to him, that he, if we come to him with all our burdens and our struggles, that he, in return is meek and lowly of heart, and his burden is light. He has promised that all the temporary trials of this life cannot be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. In this world, those who pursue Christ will suffer difficulty, but he has given us the Spirit. So my question to close this morning is, are you fooled? told Jared the other day, I probably should have titled this message, What Are You Full Of," And leave that open-ended. But are you full? Do you experience the joy and contentment that comes from passionately pursuing Christ as your highest goal and greatest treasure? Uh, whatever temporary pursuits and passions you may have in this age, good, bad, or whatever, they can never satisfy. They will only leave you wanting more. Jesus, however, provides true satisfaction. So, will you pursue him as your highest treasure and greatest goal? He has not left us alone. We have the fullness of the power to work in us and through us. It is only ours to obey and be faithful and allow our Lord and Savior, sovereign over all things to carry out His great work by the means that He has chosen and that is people like you and me. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for great gospel message. We as human beings, myself at the top of the list are so inadequate to communicate this great truth. And if it is up to us alone to speak these words and somehow make a difference, then we recognize and we acknowledge that we fail miserably. The Father, our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our own abilities. My hope is... For your word to transform hearts and lives here, even this morning, is not in my eloquence, but in the power of the Holy Spirit at work. In fact, Lord, we pray this morning that you would work in spite of us. Use our faults and our failures for your glory. And do your great work that only you can do. So, Father, I pray, as I have already, and for those who know you, that your word would be an encouragement this morning. It would compel us onward to be more faithful to the gospel. It would convict us of our sin, that we might repent and continue to walk in repentance with you. I pray your word would not allow anyone here who claims the name of Christ to be comfortable in sin, but even at this moment, that it would grip their hearts. I pray for those who, who do not know you, whether they know a lot of stuff about religion or or even about the Bible, if they've never repented their sins and and come to trust in the work that you have done on our behalf alone, I pray this morning would be the day that you would open their eyes and their minds and their hearts to this gospel. And I pray that it would be of such nature, Lord, that they couldn't keep quiet, that they would have to make it known. May you have your your way in our hearts this morning. May your spirit do it's his work in us today. So Lord, I pray that we would all respond to these words in a way that would honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we close.